Hi everyone, welcome to the All Inclusive podcast, where each week I chat with industry experts and diversity, equity, inclusion executives from the world's leading global brands who share their knowledge, experience and actionable takeaways to help inclusive employers create cultures of belonging where everyone can thrive. Today, I've got the great pleasure of being joined by Hassan Reza. He is the Head of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion for Kent Community Health NHS Foundation Trust. Hello, Hassan. Hi, Natasha. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I think the best thing to do is why not tell our listeners a little bit more about you and your journey to where you are today? Sure. Thanks. Uh, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, and I'm an avid listener of the podcast. So it's very exciting to be on. Um, so my journey to equalities has been sort of unplanned. Um, I graduated from a science degree uh, in 2016 uh, and initially worked in project management, in change management. But all of that sort of led me in 2020 uh, to a career which is now in inequality and diversity. Um, so after the uh, killing of George Floyd in America, um, as well as the adversities that we came to understand better within the UK post-COVID. Um, there was a lot of work going on in the NHS organisation I was in at the time uh, to improve the experience of Black, Asian, Marge, ethnic members of staff, as well as members of staff who had underlying health conditions, disabilities, etc. And that was sort of my first formal foray into, into EDI. Um, and from there, I then uh, picked up a job as um, head of equality and diversity at Lucian and Granite NHS Trust, and I'm now in the process of moving from there into Kent Community, uh, where I'm going to be head of equity and diversity. Uh, but I mean, even before that, and, and I think when you speak to a lot of equality uh, heads and leads, you'll, you'll find this, that in my personal life, there's a lot I've been doing since childhood without really meaning to or thinking of it as a as a means of driving an equality agenda, but be it at school, uh, I was school captain for... Um, the community and, and uh, project side of things um, when there was the refugee crisis in uh, in Calais uh, and there was about six seven thousand um, migrants who were kind of stuck in limbo there there was a number of us who got together and provided logistics and went out there and cooked for people helped build a kind of um, uh, shelters etc um, so there's been a lot that I've, I've done personally um, without necessarily thinking of it as a means to uh, a career in equalities um, but professionally in, in the last two years I've been, I've been working in equalities. Oh great that's fantastic and just for our listeners because uh, we have people listening all around the world mm -hmm. um, you're based within the UK and so mm -hmm. do you mind just explaining a little bit about kind of the NHS and sure. more particularly kind of the work that you're doing within the NHS at, at Kent sure. Community? Yep. Of course. So um, the NHS is very wide in what it offers. Uh, different organisations do different things. So where I first started Equalities, we were a mental health trust where we looked after primarily uh, the needs of, of patients who have a variety of different mental health uh, conditions. Um, where I've been at Lucian Greenwich, we're an acute trust where we have physical hospitals, we have an A&E, we uh, do a variety of kind of your day-to-day -day medical things. And again, that brings a different kind of um, requirement when it comes to qualities work for staff and where I'm now at Kent Community we're a community NHS foundation trust so we provide community services nursing services uh, a variety of kind of outpatients clinics a degree of specialist services like gynae services etc but we don't have a hospital we don't have kind of a physical building uh, where people come and see us uh, and we have we don't have an A&E etc so it's, again it's a different setup um, and interestingly as a result I think the challenge is different because 
our staff is spread out. We have staff across quite a geograph wide geographical area. A lot of them are people who literally work in the community. What I mean by that is that they move from patient to patient rather than patients coming to them. Um, so as a result, you've really got to understand and um, temper your content to their needs. Um, it's not as simple as kind of having, for example, a stall in, in the hospital where people can come and talk to us um, because we don't have a physical hospital. Um, so it's, it's more a case of exploring sort of more out of the box ideas and in, in the ways that we can communicate and engage with our members of staff. Mm, yeah, that must be really interesting. It's, it's yeah. It sounds like a challenge, but also um, something that you can really kind of sink your teeth into. Exactly. And it's a little bit more active rather than exactly. a, a reactive and just kind of exactly. popping up a stand today because we know it's a particular time of the month <laughs> so yeah that's great so um what I would love to hear from you is what do you think is the difference that DEI is actually going to be making within the healthcare sector so the interesting thing about the NHS in England is it's historically been diverse um people have have been kind of being literally brought in as well as been moving into the NHS from around the world for a long time. I was born abroad. We moved to England uh, when my parents, both doctors, um, were hired by the NHS. So there's a lot of people who I've grown up with who've come through a very similar journey. So there's historically always been diversity within the NHS. But what there hasn't been, unfortunately, is an understanding of the needs of that diverse community, that diverse population. And the nuances of um, the different support they may need, the different uh, management styles that may be required, etc., and also appreciating the need to develop people. So I've given you the example of myself with, with parents who were medics, and their, their kind of career pathway is very defined. There is the certain um, uh, milestones that every uh, medic within the UK who works in the NHS will pass through. Um, and you don't really have to kind of go out there and look for development per se in the same way that if, if you work in an ancillary part of the NHS. If you're, uh, you know, someone who's like me working in HR or um, a nurse or a clinical uh, member of staff who maybe isn't in a defined pathway, um, it's a lot more, there's a lot more onus on you and your and your management structure to ensure you're getting the development you need. So ensure, you know, you're getting out to the training you need, you're getting the exposure within the organization in different areas, et cetera, so that you can continue to progress in your career, however that may be. Of course, there's always going to be people who kind of, they take on a job uh, as a hobby or as time out of, out of their daily lives. Um, and they may be quite happy to take on a role at a certain level and stay there for their career. But you're always going to have other people who want to progress and want to ensure that they're able to reach kind of the upper echelons of, of a company or a business. So in our case in the NHS, you'll have organizations, and I've worked in organizations in the past who on paper have fantastic diversity. So if you look at them, they have 55 plus percent of their staff who are from a non-white background, who are from a black Asian minority ethnic background or a white European background, etc., which is fantastic. But when you boil it down, you see that the vast majority of that is in the very junior uh, roles. And I don't say that in a demeaning way, but just in the reality that unfortunately that diversity isn't representative across the organization. So in the NHS, we use bands, but if I boil it down into kind of currency, which is I think a little bit easier to understand, when you are in that sort of 20 to 30,000 pound uh, income salary uh, area, you'll see great diversity. When you go to 50, you'll see a little bit. But when you start to go above 55,000, the diversity shoots off a cliff. And there is cases where you may have no non-white members of staff um, at that kind of senior management band aid, 55,000 plus uh, mark. 
So for me, that's a key reason why the work that teams like my team are doing across the country is so important, is to ensure that we are developing our staff in the way they need to be developed. We are approaching the needs of our staff in the way they need to be approached. I've actually tweaked my job title as I move from equality to equity to better represent that. And it's a, it's a classic uh, argument that goes back, I think, as long as time about favoring one community versus another and again that's maybe not the best way of putting it but if you have that classic image in your mind of the two boxes three boxes and one box example where where you have someone standing and depending on their height you give them what they need and it's very similar in the work that i, I do that we are looking at supporting our colleagues who are from protected groups we have people with disabilities people uh, who have in other ways been marginalized or not supported and it may well be that we are giving them more support than we're giving to other members of staff because we're giving them what they need and that's what's really at the moment i think important in the nhs that requirement has always been there but it took covid it took the killing of george floyd it took all of those really tragic events of 2020 to finally get that ball moving and what you'll see now is that two years later there is barely any NHS organizations have now not got a dedicated equalities resource rather than before where it may have been kind of a an add-on to someone else's job yeah no I agree I think um fortunately for for us especially within London as where like both you and I are, are pretty much based at the moment it, it's always been somewhere where it, it's diverse and yeah. um given the way that the NHS is structured and the services that it's able to be provided it's open to all to use yeah. Um, inevitably you all have that diverse aspect kind of it's a little bit easier to meet but it's more I think the piece that people forget when they think about um, EDI is the kind of belonging the inclusion part and from everything you said it seems as though that that is something that that you're really focused on on achieving is making sure that people feel like they belong and that they are they have the tools available to them to excel to where they want to be yeah so what would you say are the three key steps that organizations should really be taking to achieve this inclusive workplace so i think Natasha, you put it beautifully for me inclusivity is the key not diversity and i say that because you can have great diversity i've already given you example of the nhs but i've heard of other examples where you can have for example a board of directors where it's 50 percent men 50 percent women so your diversity on paper is fantastic. But the reality of some of those boards is that they still look towards the men to make the decision. Even if that's not necessarily kind of outwardly apparent, the power still lies with those who identify as male on, on that board. And you haven't achieved anything. You're a diverse organization, you're a diverse board, but you're still working in the same way as you were working maybe 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So for me, for and an equality's agenda to be successful, I think, yes, you have to first focus on inclusivity. And to do that, you need to reflect on your organization, the way you do things, the practices you have, and consider from a, the perspective of someone who is quote-unquote other, so someone who is not necessarily like me, have I considered their needs? Have I considered the um, approach that they may take? For me, one of the best ways to do that is looking at uh, the kind of concept of reverse mentoring. So very often you'll find in organizations that the senior most members of staff aren't necessarily from a diverse background or aren't necessarily from protective group themselves. What we've done in a few organizations I've worked with is introduced uh, reverse mentoring schemes where 
the senior members of staff, CEOs, CPOs, CFOs, etc., are paired with some of the most junior members of staff who have opposing characteristics to them. So if you have a male white CEO, we may find someone from a black Asian white ethnic background who is female, who has a disability, who you know has a number of protected characteristics to come and mentor that individual. So the senior member of staff becomes a student, junior member of staff becomes a teacher, and they teach them about what it's like to be me working on the front line. And there's two benefits to that. One is that very often, I think, any senior manager, if they're honest to themselves, would reflect and agree is that the people on the front line are a lot more in touch with the business than sometimes senior management can be. They're actually delivering whatever it is senior management want to achieve. The second benefit is that you're going to learn so much about the experiences of those members of staff, of people who share similar characteristics with them, so that tomorrow when I'm writing policy, tomorrow when I'm setting a vision of the business, tomorrow when the board is making you know landmark decisions, I would hope that that's now something that you can consider and think about that from my time with person X, they opened my eyes to this, this, and this. How would that fit into this this piece of work that we're doing? Um, I know that's not necessarily answering three things for you, but I think that's kind of, for me, that that's sort of one of the key things you need to do is really just look at your own organization and try and pull apart the way you're doing things and appreciate how inclusive it is. There's another example that I discussed um, recently with, with a few colleagues of organizations who have um, your classic four or five weeks annual leave, um, but they say that you can't take more than two weeks at once. And again, it may not sound uh, in any way uh, restrictive. You wouldn't think that's an equalities uh, flag or in any way, but what I was at, uh, kind of getting my colleagues to reflect on is that if you have a diverse organization where you have people who have parents, grandparents, family members abroad, four or 5,000 miles away, they're going to see them once a year. Are we really going to restrict them to only going for two weeks, especially again at the moment, considering uh, cost of living and all the other factors that are making things even more challenging? If we're going to be supportive of the well-being and of, of the needs of our employees and our colleagues, should we not be a little bit more flexible in ensuring that when they are going to see parents, they're going to see grandparents, they're going to go visit family, that they're able to actually go away and, and take the time they need? Very often, the difference between two weeks, three weeks for an organization practically isn't really all that but for an individual can mean a lot. So it's things like that, just considering that the variety of different policies and, and just ways of working that I have in my organization, have I considered the variety of people who I employ or have I written it from the perspective of quote unquote the majority? Mm, yeah, no, that's, and that particular policy example that you gave in terms of the, the cap on the annual leave, I mean, I've worked in organizations where, yeah, I've it's definitely been written into the contract that like you can only do a maximum of, of two weeks mm -hmm. um, at, at any given time. And at the time, I actually thought, oh, yeah, that's the beginning when I'm young. I don't really have like <laughs> much commitment. So I'm like, yeah, actually, two weeks is great. Like, that's fantastic. But then as I've gotten older, my family dynamics has changed. Yeah. And there was a period where actually for me, two weeks was actually going to be really difficult because I wanted to take my daughter away to see family. Um, and whilst we're there, we've got to see other family and the flight alone takes kind of six, seven, eight hours. Okay. So once you actually get settled and then when you've got adding kids and traveling yeah. with kids, you probably already you know yourself as Sam. Yeah. Yep. you've got a family too and it can be really stressful so I need at least about three days just to, <laughs> to decompress yep. from the whole traveling so yeah I agree I think it's it's a it's a good 
thing to do to actually mm. kind of think about actually there's a lot of people at the organization that have got different needs yeah. and ha- having that extra flexibility would probably mean a great deal to that individual. So is there any other key areas that you think organisations should really making some further steps on? Yeah, sure. So Natasha, another key area for me of, of focus, again, from a personal perspective as well, is disability. I think a number of organisations, uh, including the NHS, um, they need to work on the diversity of their disability within the organisation. Um, so my my personal uh, investment in Zay is I've, I've had a disability since childhood uh, due to uh, quite a, a number of challenging uh, health conditions when I was very young. Um, and I've seen through organisations where I've worked in the private sector and the public sector now that we don't have the approach of inclusivity and the approach of wanting to meet the needs of, of colleagues who may have seen or unseen disabilities that we claim to have. Every organization, because of the Equality Act, uh, is very vocal about the fact that they are inclusive, they are going to offer adjustments, they're going to make things work. But I think the reality is when you, uh, as a person with a disability, go into a uh, place of employment, very often um, the public-facing message of inclusivity isn't the reality on the ground. Um, and I think part of that is because the, we do not have, and again, speaking about the NHS, we don't have kind of the uh, representation at senior levels uh, with colleagues who have seen or unseen disabilities. So every NHS organization pr- produces two reports, one on their uh, racial equality and one on their disability equality. And when you look at those reports, you can see that, that, that again, just like with, with uh, a diverse ethnic ethnic background, the further you go up uh, the pay bands, the fur- the lower you see that kind of representation. And with disability, it's almost worse. Uh, with ethnicity, we still have, because there's been so much work, even pre-COVID, but especially in the last two or three years, post-COVID, post-George Floyd, there's been so much work done that we are seeing improvements. There's a long way to go. And I'm not by any means saying that we need to refocus our attention, but we need to kind of widen our scope and bring other elements in and ensure we're doing more. I think that there are a lot of people uh, who struggle with with getting uh, into kind of the roles they want to get into because there's not that approach of ensuring that they're able to have the quite reasonable and simple workplace adjustments that they may need. There's not enough awareness about the variety of government support available. Um, there's kind of entire packages of financial support government offers, but we're not necessarily kind of clued up enough as organisations to ensure that we're pointing that out to our employees where they may not be aware. Um, so for me, that's another key area I've been doing a lot of work on. It was, it was a big focus when I was at Lucian Greenwich, um, and we we achieved a, a quite a few uh, great milestones there around that, and it's going to be a key area where I'm going to be focusing now on going into Kent as well. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that, Hassan. And I agree with you. I think um, I had a, a previous guest on that we were talking about disability and mm. um, the role that it plays within workplaces when they're creating their DEI initiatives. And it is something that um, on the front facing, it's they know that it needs to be included, but the implementation and the yeah. sustainability of, of those initiatives that are meant to be focused on people with disabilities or or people with disabilities that, that, that we don't even see, yeah. um, doesn't really it doesn't really stick we know that it's not really sticking quite well and um it's great to hear that within the NHS and, and with the work that you're doing it's something that, that you feel is whilst it's personal to you yeah. it's also something that's most important in 
to, to be kind of working on so that's that's great to hear what's been one of the have you faced any challenges what what would you say is one of the things that, that has been the hardest in in creating those initiatives so with disability the interesting thing is that for some reason and i'm going to speak completely frankly um people seem to lose their inhibitions when it comes to other people's health mm. where i may have uh, an ethnically diverse background um, and I may be, you know, uh, being managed by someone who is white British, white European. They wouldn't, unless they're they're kind of a little bit out of the out of the loop with their equalities understanding. They wouldn't necessarily make a comment about my ethnicity or make a comment about kind of my background uh, in an inappropriate way. Whereas when it comes to disability, um, for reasons that to this day elude me, people feel a lot more comfortable to pass judgment, to pass comment. I had to have um, extensive surgery uh, very uh, in the last few years uh, to kind of um, rework some of the, the um, interventions that I had in my childhood. Um, and when I explained that to my manager um, at the time, and this was pre-NHS, uh, uh, that manager's response was that they had had uh, kind of a, a, a fracture to their kneecap and needed only two weeks off, whereas my professional consultant medical team were telling the organization that Hassan's going to need sort of six to eight months recovery um and for me kind of it's it's it shone a light on the reality of the fact that for whatever reason people feel because they may have had an experience or because I may suffer from pain or because I may have days where I'm down or, or I have days where I struggle with with kind of uh wanting to to engage with things all of a sudden I feel I suddenly have some kind of right or some kind of uh, permission to make uh, comparisons and judgments and comments when it comes to, to other people's uh, realities. And I think that then also in inhibits the ability for those in a position of, of power to make change to ensure that change is happening. Where with, um, with ethnicity and other areas of the protective characteristics, it's so obviously cut and dry for some reason when it comes to disability i've always found that it is it's an area where it can be more of a challenge um very often like you say people appreciate the fact that things need to change or things need to be done in a certain way but when you actually start to go about how we, we're going to make those changes there's a lot of barriers in, in, in the way that people approach that there's yesterday and i don't know if you've seen it but it's, it's kind of uh going around at the moment within edi circles there was this really horrible video of of a lady who uh, has is paralyzed, I think, from the waist down, and she had to literally crawl to her seat in the plane because they wouldn't let her wheelchair on the plane. And she highlighted some of the comments that staff uh, at the airline made to her, some of the comments staff at the airport made to her. And again, it just, for me, shone back on how much work there still is to do, how little consideration as a society we give to the needs of people who have both seen and unseen disabilities. People who have uh, blue parking badges for disabled bays who may not on you know have a visible reason to have that but they may they, they very certainly have gone through a process to be given that badge so if that's because they have an unseen disability that's because they have reasons that aren't necessarily obvious who am i to make comment but how often would you see either people you know going as far as actually passing comment or kind of that sort of disapproving look or the shake of the head kind of the assumption of why using that space because you're not you know physically disabled you're not elderly you're not you know obviously outwardly in need of that um so for me that there's so much to do not just on a healthcare level not just on an organizational level but on a societal level to bring us up to speed on disability where we've done a lot more when it comes to the other areas of characteristics and 
it's something that, like I say, I'm trying. It's, I think, it's another one where lived experience um, helps appreciate sort of the, the realities of, of the area. So I know lived experience helps with any work inequalities. And you'll very, very often find that people who work in inequalities have lived experience of the areas they're working in. And it's very often what brings them there. Um, I've kind of seen two two groups of inequality, either those who are doing it because they have a passion and it's not just a job, or those who are doing it because it's the flavor of the month and, and it looks good on your CV. And it's very apparent very quickly which camp you sit in. Because there's such a personal interest, there's such a personal drive for colleagues working in inequalities worldwide when it comes to the work we're doing, a lot is happening. And I think, again, on that front, we need to ensure we're engaging people who have seen and unseen disabilities within our work, bringing them on board, bringing them into qualities teams so they can also help steer the work that we're doing and ensure that we're going in the right direction. What would you say is one of the things that, that you've done um, that's been most effective? So, you know, just, just on, on, on very kind of uh, granular level, um, at Lucia and Greenwich, I spent a lot of time just having people be ready to talk about their disability it's a very personal thing and I appreciate that and I don't expect everyone to be kind of open with with all of their colleagues but what I wanted was we had a very low rate of declaration of disability and as a result we didn't have kind of the figures as to who is and isn't disabled be that physical uh seen unseen etc um if we have the correct figures if we have the correct representation we're able to then offer people the support they need so within the nhs we have tools where you declare your a variety of different um kind of edi uh indicators including disability ethnicity etc um and on that if you can obviously choose not to disclose you can also choose to skip it but if people are ticking yes or no to their disability status we're able to then go out and ensure that have they got the kind of desk they need have they got the kind of chair they need have they got the working pattern they need um so throughout my year so far Lucian Greenwich, i've done a lot of kind of just public facing stuff where I talk about my own experiences and bring along colleagues who also have experiences that they're ready to talk about and as a result we've seen those figures going up we've seen more colleagues coming forward who are able to support with for the first time seeing people coming to us who've been working in the organization 10-15 years and they've been working in a way which flares their chronic pain flares their symptoms makes their lives very challenging but they've never felt that there was an avenue where they could go and f and find support or find help and that doesn't necessarily that there's no i'm not put, put, putting any fault on anyone there there's no blame necessary to, to, to put out um but they just weren't ever pointing in the right direction and some very simple interventions from our side have been able to improve those people's ways of working. We've been able to ensure that they're getting the leave they need for appointments, that they're being able to flex around their working pattern if they're having difficult days, be that uh, physically or mentally. So little, little things that I think make such a big difference to the experience that your employees have. I know within the NHS, we do a fantastic job when it comes to patient care. And we're always very, very aware of the needs of our patients when it comes to accessibility. We would never, for example, offer an appointment to a patient on the third floor of a building with no lift. But you'd be surprised how often we give offices to people on the third floor of a building with no lift when they have already foretold us about the uh, need for a ground floor office or the need for accessibility via lift. Um, so it's those little nuances that we do so well when it comes to our patients that I think we need to do better on when it comes to our employees. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Thanks so much for sharing that, Hassan. I think 
um that's gonna be really valuable for for the people listening and um, not just people that are within healthcare but i think just in in general across the board you've, you've given some really great snippets there and and some actual takeaways um what would you say has actually been like your proudest moment so far through the work that you've been doing that's a great question so I know when I ask people, here, <laughs> like, hmm, it's so much great work. What's been the best? <laughs> it's it's not even that. It's that I I know it's it's kind of a classic annoying response that you know it's a team effort, etc. That it's, it's not just me. Um, but the very first role I did in Equalities when I was at Oxford's NHS, uh, I was a project manager. It was a part time role, and so I was splitting it between my other role in the trust. It was my first time stepping into a more senior role as well in the organization. Um, and it was after the murder of George Floyd. A lot of it was based on, on the feedback that the, the CEO had got from Black and Asian minority ethnic members of staff. And for me, the pride was that after six months of being there uh, and, and doing the role I did, the project just called BAFO, Building a Fair, uh, building a fair Oxley's, um, it, it was kind of a term that then become part of the vocabulary of everyone in the organization so we'd only done it for six months i'd only been doing it part-time yes it was a team effort there's a lot of other people involved um but we've been able to raise the profile so much of the work that we were doing that everyone was aware of it everyone was engaging with it we had the odd member of staff who didn't necessarily agree with all the elements of it but that's the realities of the qualities and i'm a great believer in you need to hear from people who are who have the opposing opinion I don't think you should shut that down. I think sometimes people who are critical of the work you're doing can really open your eyes up to something you've missed or an area you can improve on, or at the very least, they just make you aware of, of how you need to maybe adjust your messaging so that people are more on board with you. Um, but it, it really was something that I look back on, uh, and I think that we just achieved so much in such a little, little amount of time. And that work continues. I've, I've now left the organization, but the work's continuing. They're continuing to really ensure that they're embodying the values that we came up with through that project um and it's it's become you know a program in itself um and, and it's really kind of something that i'm, I'm really um, glad i was working on uh, i'm really appreciative of, of the variety various different managers who kind of saw potential in me to bring me on board for that project but also kind of really happy with the work that i personally did on that oh great i'm it, it's so great to hear and it must be such a great feeling to start a project something that you really feel deeply passionate about and to then see the progress and that messaging yeah. being kind of spoken back to you exactly. by, it, it just shows that actually it just makes you feel like oh I'm doing something great yeah. I'm doing something exactly. it's getting through to people I'm so glad that you're able to get that experience and, and it is just that when, when it comes back to you it just it reassures you that you've you've done whatever you did you did it right um, it's not coming back to you kind of walked or, or in the wrong sense. What you wanted is what you've achieved. And that kind of that sense of relief on one part, I think sometimes in inequalities, it's, it can be quite nerve wracking if this is going to go across the right way. Um, but also that just that feeling of fulfillment that, yeah, what we wanted to do, we've done it fantastic. And so I know you did speak about there were some people that that didn't wasn't yeah. quite on board with all of kind of the messaging. Um, so which was was probably obviously a challenge to, to try to overcome. But did you face any other challenges that, that you weren't expecting? We were very lucky. Like I said, because of the murder of George Floyd, because of 
the uh, inequalities that had always been there, but had been really, really highlighted by the initial waves of COVID, it was very hard for anyone to argue that what we were trying to do wasn't necessary. Um, and it really put the NHS, and I'm, I think not the NHS, I work the NHS, therefore I'm saying the NHS, but I think it put organisations worldwide in a position where they had no out, they really had to listen to their members of staff who are from a diverse background, they had to listen to their members of staff who because of health conditions are being impacted by COVID and genuinely either choose to engage with them or, or, or take a position of, you know, neither here nor there. And I think either way that was taking a position because it was showing people that either this is something that the organization cares about or it's, you know, it, it doesn't affect your day-to-day -day business, therefore it's not in our interests. Um, so we, we because of that we we were really in a position where there weren't many barriers thrown our way but you do always have the classic kind of uh, issues of getting into people's diaries making sure that you're able to get senior managers like i say not just at the very highest parts of the trust or organization but also the senior managers on a local level so a lot of uh, nhs trusts will have frontline managers then they'll have middle managers and they'll senior managers who sit on that that kind of uh, front part of the organization um, and making sure that they're engaged making sure that they're working with us and they're um understanding why we're doing it um but yeah i, I know that, again i'm sorry that doesn't necessarily give you no, maybe the answer you were hoping for yeah um, no 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 not at all i think um it's nice to hear that that you wasn't you, you didn't have to face um some those key challenges in trying to kind of get the stakeholder buy-in which is which we know is is one of the main ones um but it's good to hear that that you didn't need to do that you didn't have face that but in the same breath you've you've clearly explained that there will always be an element of getting them to ensure that they're engaged really engaged like not just oh yeah sure great fine go ahead yeah. fantastic yep yeah. do that initiative that sounds great here's the funding and then just leave it at that it's yeah. really kind of getting them oh no okay so like this is what we've got come come down come down to yeah. the meeting it's at 11 o'clock that sort of element to it um which is important and i think it's good yeah, to, for people to hear that whilst you've got the buy-in yeah. you still need to make sure that they're they're present um, and one thing we did for to, to do that in each of the organization works in touch is that we have paired our execs with our networks so we have staff networks at all three of those organizations i've mentioned that represent a variety of different groups we have kind of made it mandatory for the execs to to uh, sponsor them but also actually engage with them they have to attend their meetings they have to bring their uh, points to board meetings etc so just as a kind of a, maybe a tip or a hint to other organizations who may be listening or people who may be listening that want to do similar things in their organizations is that sometimes um giving the execs a little bit of a push uh, can, can be helpful um, and where there may be some who may be a little bit not engaged to begin with very often when they begin to hear from the people directly it's hard to ignore mm, yeah um well Hassan I mean I've so much enjoyed our conversation today um just before you leave us could you give some parting piece of advice to our listeners on how they can best um achieve their goals and reach success yeah of course so yeah again first and foremost thank you it's been a pleasure uh, i've really enjoyed talking to you today and i think in all the time we've we've been conversing and setting this up it's really clear that the work you're doing and, and the passion you have for it is so uh, kind of shines through and i really hope you know you continue to be so successful in this uh the podcast continues to grow i'd love to come back at some point and, and follow up as well oh yeah um, of course from from my perspective um advice for others is that 
first and foremost, make it a passion. I think equality needs to be more than just your day job. Um, if it's just your day job, consider how you can maybe widen your scope, widen your understanding and make it more of a kind of part and parcel of your life. Um, I think equality's work transcends organizations. It's something that's taking place in society. It's something that's taking place in cultures. It's something that's taking place wherever you are in the world. There is work to do on the equalities front. Um, and patience. Equalities is a big big remit look after yourself don't burn yourself out don't think that you're not achieving anything it takes a long time and you've got to have patience it's not something that you'll deliver in a year or two years i think and that's a reality and that's not to put a down on anything but that's i think just to help appreciate and i've seen uh, in my uh, leadership where i've had people work for me who really had a huge passion for the work but after six seven months they were so um burnt out because they, they'd thrown everything at it and hadn't taken time to look after themselves throw everything at it but appreciate that this isn't going to happen overnight appreciate that it can take years for some of these things in my organizations where we improved uh, our diversity by 0.5 percent we celebrated that because that is a improvement that's better than we were last year and you've got to celebrate those little wins because those little wins is what will one day take us to a big win and one day get us to a society and a working organization where we are more inclusive, we are more diverse, and we are more loving and understanding of one another. And I think the final thing I'll say is that we just need, as a society, give each other more space, allow people to practice the way they want to practice, be the way they want to be, express themselves the way they want to express themselves, and be tolerant of one another. Not everyone is going to share your opinions, and that's fine, but we need to appreciate what opinions we need to hold personal to ourselves and what opinions are appropriate in public and within our working places, and just be tolerant of one another, allow one another to flourish in the way they want to flourish, and I think as as a whole, we will all get to a much better place doing that. Oh, that's great, Hassan. That's some really, really great advice. I'm going to take on board that advice as well. <laughs> and that's fantastic. And how can our listeners connect with you and say hi? Yep. So I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I, I think it's HM Reza, but if you just search Hassan Reza on LinkedIn, um, I should have come up. There's, there's, I think, a few of us on there, but the one that works in equality is, is me. Um, on Twitter, you can follow me at Hassan Reza, and it's Reza with two R's because the other Twitter handle's already taken, so H-A-S-A-N-R-R-E-Z-A. -A. I'm sure Natasha can put that somewhere on, yes, on, our, no, definitely. Uh, on our final copy. Um, and also, I'm, I'm happy to leave. So I'm, I also chair a charity, uh, a cancer charity, so I'm happy to leave. Natasha, I can give you the contact details for me at that charity, and people can always reach out to me there. And, and, and if they ever want to engage in anything, or, you know, again, I'm, I'm more than happy to advise, speak to people, guide you as, as much as I can. Um, and finally, Natasha, at some point, well, I am going to be launching a podcast with Ken Community. So uh, look out for that through all of those various channels, uh, not as a competitor, Natasha, but as a partner. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> we can hopefully all. collab in the future. No, no, not at all. I think the more voices that are out there yeah. spreading the message, it's it's going to only improve and be better. Exactly. There's no competition here at all. No. I'm okay. more the merrier, I say. But thanks again, Hassan. And Thank I look you. forward to speaking to you again. And I'll be sharing all of your contact information down below on the episode for everyone to come and reach out to you. Thanks, Natasha.